Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com. Join us at the Sonic Cinema Patreon for exclusive content and exclusive reviews before they are posted on Sonic Cinema. I've got a a few videos and discussions on uh, chapters of my upcoming book. I've got exclusive commentaries that are not available anywhere else and have never been available anywhere else, as well as some uh, discussions on my music and on music in general. So that is patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema, and I hope you'll join me. Today's interview I'm uh, really looking forward to is with a uh, writer and director from Canada that I got to know a few years ago through their short film Eroticide. Uh, we're going to talk about that film as well as his time as a manager at the Carlton uh, Cinema in Toronto. And I'm pleased to be joined today by writer-director Matthew Saliba. I'm pleased to be joined today by a writer and director I've known for a few years. Uh, he first uh, approached me about reviewing his uh, short film, Eroticide, in 2014, and we've known each other ever since. He's also worked as a uh, theater manager at the Carlton Cinema in Toronto. I, If I recall, that's the one you were at. And you were a curator of um, putting together midnight screenings and special screenings and stuff like that. And that's, part of, that's one of the things I did want to talk to you about today as uh, somebody who's a theater manager himself, but has a very different experience and perspective from that. So thank you for joining me today, uh, Matthew Saliba. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. It's, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's great to put a voice to, uh, to a face, and uh, I'm looking forward to this. Mm-hmm. So the, the first sort of general question I always seem to uh, lead off with when I talk to uh, filmmakers is, what inspired you to uh, decide to make movies to begin with? Um, well, you know, uh, my 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 journey to being a filmmaker is kind of an interesting one because uh, when I was young, I used to I, I was always really interested in storytelling, and uh, as a child, I used to have all these Ninja Turtles and X Men and Spider Man toys. Uh, of course, had I known that I would be a collector later on in life, I would have never taken them out of the box. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, so I would, uh, I would do like little plays with them, and, um, mm-hmm. and that was that was a lot of fun. And then as I went on to school, I uh, got into writing, so I would write uh, short stories and poems. Uh, and then, I mean, the, the very first experience I had with filmmaking actually came in the form of my high school economics class, of all places. Hmm. Uh, we uh, we had to we were given a, a project where we had to pitch a product to a group of investors who would be played by the other students in the class, and um, so we decided. Uh, my friends and I we were big film fans, so we decided to make a, a trailer for a horror film called The Other Side of Darkness, <laughs> and uh, which was actually. And now that I think about it, this was actually an adaptation of a short story I had written for one of my English classes. So uh, even right from the get go, I was big on adaptation. Um, so yeah, we, we put this thing together and someone had to direct it and I took it upon myself to do so. And I really, really enjoyed the experience. Uh, in many respects, I saw filmmaking as an extension of writing only instead of with 
storyboards or using images. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turned out really well. Everyone really enjoyed it. And then uh, by the time university came, uh, I had enrolled in uh, communication studies with a specialization in film. And um, that's where I made uh, my first two movies. And uh, it was a really great learning experience. And I got the bug. And uh, I haven't really stopped since then. Okay. All right. Um, who are some of the filmmakers? I mean, I've I've known you for a few years on social media, so I mean, I've seen you uh, talk about certain filmmakers. Who are some of the uh, filmmakers that have inspired you the most over the years? Uh, you know, it's funny because uh, uh, I guess unfortunately I, I didn't get a chance to send you some of the other films that I made. But I, if you ever watch the films that I've done in chronological order, yeah, you can always tell when I discovered a new director. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because, like, the very, very first film, like, we're talking, like, student films, mm -hmm. uh, I had discovered Quentin Tarantino, like a lot of people did in my generation, so yeah. uh, so I had, <laughs> you know, my first two films had people talking, making pop culture references and such, mm -hmm. uh, and then I discovered David Lynch, uh, and so then I was, you know, David Lynch Jr. for the longest time, uh, <laughs> and then, um, so, uh, and then, you know, I mean, I like, uh, I eventually got into like exploitation films. And so there was a period where I was doing that. Uh, but then when the time uh, came for eroticide, uh, I had discovered uh, Michael Haneke mm -hmm. and uh, he, he uh, definitely was probably the biggest influence on that film. Mm -hmm. uh, I went through like his entire filmography and uh, I mean, he's, he made a, a lot of really tremendous films. I mean, to this day, I still can't get the seventh continent out of my mind. It's such a, it's a, I love the way that film builds to a climax, which mm -hmm. is just frightening. Um, but uh, I think the film that really, uh, that particularly inspired uh, Eroticide was uh, uh, his last, well, the one he made before, uh, Happy End, uh, which was uh, Amour. And uh, the thing that really struck me the most about that movie was um, the, lack of the, the lack of a soundtrack or score. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, because, you know, like, I love music, and, I mean, there's, and, you know, soundtracks are one of the things that attracts me to a filmmaker's body of work, but Haneke seemed to have so much confidence in his actors and his subject matter that he felt that a score would be intrusive in the process. Mm -hmm. And um, that was just so inspirational, because I had never seen a director do something like that before. I mean, usually music is almost, you know, overused to the right. point where it takes the story, whereas... You know, he just let his actors and his screenplay uh, do its own thing. And so that was kind of the approach I wanted to take uh, with my film because I, I felt like I felt very strongly about the material. And, you know, as, as I was writing certain scenes, I, I couldn't really imagine what kind of score I would put because I just mm -hmm. felt that, you know, I mean, we'll talk about it as we get later on. But like I just felt like the actors did such a great job that I felt a score would undermine the work that they had done. Mm hmm. Uh, where can uh, where can people uh, check out your uh, films? I know Eroticide is on your uh, YouTube page. Um, uh, yes. Uh, well, on my YouTube page, I, I do have a few trailers for some of the other films that I made. Um, there are certain uh, there are certain legal reasons why uh, <laughs> some of the films I made are not uh, are not are not commercially available uh, anymore. Um, due to uh, certain music issues. Mm. <laughs> um, so, um, although I must say, um, you know, every once in a while I'll get messages through social media from really 
far out countries in the world uh, where they say, oh, you know, I just bought a DVD of such and such a film that you made. And I almost want to ask them, like, where did you buy that DVD? <laughs> I, even, I don't have a copy of my film. <laughs> so oh, where wow. are you getting that? Um, so, so yeah, for the time being, Eroticize is the only one that's up there. But I may upload uh, my first two films, uh, especially the uh, the Manipulator and the Subservient, because um, I don't know if you uh, if you took a look at that uh, little teaser that I posted, but that's a clip that really took on a life of its own. If you ever read the comments, because hmm. uh, some of the people that commented on that, I, I don't know if they realize that this is a movie or they might think it's real life. And so there, there's some pretty disturbing comments. <laughs> uh, I guess as most comment sections are on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, but the, yeah, so I may upload those two because there's no legal copyright issues, but the other ones, um, you're probably better off trying to find a torrent somewhere. Mm -hmm. Although not that I encourage downloading. But, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, let's go ahead and get into Aronside a bit. Um, that was, that was, you know, like I mentioned, that was the first time uh, I'd spoken to you and you reached out to me as far as uh, watching that and reviewing it for Sonic Cinema. And that was, that's a movie that always, that really had a very immediate impact on me in terms of how it affected me. I really, it's, it's, for a short film, it's kind of long. It's almost 40 minutes. But the weird thing about it that I noticed when I was watching it earlier this week before this uh, interview is that you don't feel like it's that long. And the way the scenes are built, the way each scene plays out is so well constructed and so well done that it just moves. And it moves in a way that you don't even think about the length of the film and it's a movie that I, I think I mentioned to you. It is it has been uh, one of my favorite ones that I've had a chance to watch over the years from different filmmakers. So I really and I feel that more that even more now. Uh, so uh, oh well well <laughs> well first of all thank you so much uh, and um, I know um, I don't know if she got a chance to tell you this but I I, I had spoken to um, Stephanie Van Ryn who played Elise in the movie mm -hmm. and I remember I think there was one year that you did like um, your favorite performances in in movies and I yeah. think you had listed her as one of your favorite uh, one of the favorite actress performances of the year. Yeah. So I wanted to let you know that she was really flattered and uh, she uh, mm -hmm. she really appreciated the, uh, the support. So um, and thank you for that. I mean, your mm -hmm. review was one of the one of one of the more beautifully written ones too. So, well, thank you. And yeah, I mean, I, and watching watching it again, I mean, she she is really she is really kind of heartbreaking in that movie, and it's really painful to see. It's it's fascinating to see how she's having to. Uh, go about this situation. It's really, and by the end of the movie, I mean, I, I I feel like she just breaks her your heart in the at the end of that movie, and it's it's really it's really a credit to her and to your writing that how well that works. Well, it's funny because I mean uh, I don't want to spoil anything in in case there's people out there that haven't seen it, but um, there is there is a moment towards the end, not the end end, but you know, during a particularly heart-wrenching film with her when the camera just kind of stays on her and she starts to, to cry as mm -hmm. certain plot points are, 
Uh, I yeah, I remember watching that in the playback, and I actually started crying. We had to take ten for a bit because uh, it was really moving. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I she, she was an incredible actress to work with, and uh, and it, and it's so fun because like you, if you follow her on social media, she's very outgoing and mm-hmm. extroverted, almost the complete opposite of the character that she ended up playing in Eroticide. Yeah. So uh, so yeah, no, I mean, uh, she was a pleasure. Well, where did the where did the idea for eroticide come from? Oh boy. Um, all right. Well, um, it, it's funny because rec- you know, recently, uh, as you know, um, and I don't know if you want to get into this right away, but um, I've been. Well, I, I do suffer from anxiety and depression, and a lot of that stems from various traumas that I've had in life, and um, one of the very big traumas. Uh, was uh, a certain period in my life when I was drawn to certain uh, women who were, I guess you could say, emotionally and, uh, well, emotionally um, disturbing and abusive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so def- so it's funny because like when I made a roster, the idea was to address the issue of addiction and, in this case, certain activities in the kink community that might not be for everyone, especially if they're not particularly stable mentally. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was definitely uh, some autobiographical elements in there, but at the time, I think I was trying to do it more from um, uh, more from a distance. Like, I was sort of, like, commenting on this, but not necessarily confirming that this was my situation. Right. Uh, but, you know, recent developments have arisen where, I realized that eroticide is a lot more autobiographical than I could have ever uh, intended it to be. Um, but uh, but anyway, I mean to answer to answer the big question. Um, so uh, I've I've been a part of the fetish and kink community for quite some time now. I would say since two thousand two two thousand three. And um, I mean I, I, well, there's a I mean that's a whole podcast right there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I mean there's a lot of stories I can tell you. About but um, in my uh, in my um, interactions with people in the community, um, I learned something pretty interesting because um, obviously when you're dealing with people who are into this kind of stuff, um, you're, you, you've got very open-minded and very adventurous individuals. But um, and it's funny because like you can approach a dominatrix and you can have her do all sorts of unspeakable things to you, but when it comes to the issue of uh, erotic humiliation or uh, edge play, as it's called, uh, there are many people who not only is this uh, a limit that they're not interested in pushing, uh, this is like a hard no. Like there are some people who will flat out refuse to do this. Mm -hmm. And, and I always thought that was an interesting sort of um, limit to have, you know, considering what some, some people can't like considering what some people ask for in, in a session. So I just thought that was a very odd limit to have until I realized through personal experience that the thing about mind games is that unlike, let's say, uh, unlike, let's say someone who, who gets off on being flogged, um, you know, you, if you're flogging someone, you could physically see when you've gone too far, mm-hmm. you know, whereas with mind games, you know, you don't know just how detrimental your your words are to a sub. And sometimes even a sub doesn't even realize the effect that they can have until years down the road. 
And so because there's no real way to tell when you push someone too far, uh, a lot of people don't really want to engage in that kind of stuff, especially since S&M is really the only form of lovemaking or any form of sexual activity that actually requires consent. Mm-hmm. So um, so I, th- I thought that was interesting. And I wanted to make a film about, um, I guess, myself in this case, you know, because um, I had been in a couple of relationships that were similar to that of Yen and Kendra. And, you know, how sometimes you just get to a point where, uh, you start believing uh, these words that they're telling you and how that really just crushes and destroys your self-esteem and mm-hmm. self-worth uh, to the point that, you know, if you ever manage to pull yourself out of that relationship and find someone who genuinely loves you and cares about you, you sometimes feel you're not worthy of that person's love. Right. And uh, and I've actually never really admitted this, but uh, like right now uh, I'm married and We've been in. Well, we've been married. It's going to be six years in September, and we've been together for eight years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a very big point, like especially in the beginning of a relationship, where I almost couldn't believe that someone would genuinely love me for me. You know, mm-hmm. because I've been so used to hatred and derision and getting off on that. So it was almost hard for me in the beginning to have any kind of normal relationship. Uh, I mean, that has obviously changed since then. But, um, but it's, it's, it was, and so I felt like, uh, and again, I've always used film and the arts as a therapeutic thing mm-hmm. as a way to deal with demons. And so, um, that's pretty much the, the, uh, the origin of eroticide and, and why I decided to make it. Well, thank you very much for your honesty. I mean, and you know, I know from personal experience because I'm somebody who has dealt with stress and anxiety as well as depression, uh, for a number of years my, myself, uh, and I've somebody who I've, I've basically been doing therapy for about 10 years off and on for anxiety, stress, and uh, getting through with depression. And I know there were, there were times in my life where depression really was a, a difficult, uh, was something that was inhibiting me. And that combined with my my stress and anxiety issues just would make it very very difficult for me to uh cope on a daily basis and uh it's and i i know firsthand what exactly what you're talking about as far as art and creativity being therapeutic because i mean i've you know when i've done uh music over the years there are some pieces that i've done that have been therapeutic because of the fact that it's like I have a very specific thing that I'm trying to express. And uh, that that personal aspect of Arasad really does uh, come through. And I think that's part of the thing that is really beautiful and uh, haunting about it is because of the fact that um, you you really do sense that all of these things, even even if the details are not compl- are not strictly, you know, word for word something that actually happened the actual feelings are and uh yeah yeah and oh yeah sorry go ahead oh no no i'm sorry <laughs> go ahead um <clears throat> but uh yeah and and over the past couple of years uh certainly i've i've uh gotten a little bit more up close and personal with uh regards to uh certain to some friends of mine who've had to deal with 
who've been in toxic relationships like Yen and Kendra are. And uh, it's it's definitely something that you can you can tell that the uh, the impact of that as well as the to us you know especially with somebody who um, might be codependent on other people and how how that inevitably could draw it's hard to break that it's hard to break that cycle it's hard to break that cycle of needing that person even if you understand that they're not good for you yeah absolutely um and that was the thing too i mean even before we shot a single frame of the film uh when i would uh i remember uh giving the script to my wife uh she was the first person to read it and uh, she was just bawling by the end of it and it was weird because i had such a complicated reaction to that because on one hand uh, as her husband, the last thing I want to do is see her or make her cry. Right. But then, as a, but as a writer, I was thrilled because my gosh, this is—do <laughs> you, you know what I mean? I, that yeah, sounds yeah, horrible, but yeah. you know, it's just—it uh, <laughs> was just like, oh wow, this works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and so, yeah, a lot of people. Um, um, there was another uh, individual who ended up helping us with the casting of that film, and uh, he uh, he wrote. Uh, I guess the equivalent of almost like a 10 page uh, interpretation of the script. Uh, and it was just uh, talking about his experiences and he was opening up about how, you know, kind of like what you said, like, you know, like, I, like, I mean, he, he couldn't necessarily uh, relate to, let's say the, the fetish aspect of the story, but certainly mm-hmm. the idea of being in a toxic relationship was something that uh, resonated with him. So yeah, that's that we definitely like right from the get go, I knew that we were on something pretty special but it had to be handled a certain way because in the hands of maybe another director, uh, this could have become, you know, the room, like Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? And and I do, and it's actually a, a funny story because um, a couple years after the film came out, uh, there was an actor friend of mine who was doing a, a scene study uh, course and uh, they had to pick a scene to, to act out. And so he and his partner chose uh, the big Yan and Kendra scene from Eroticide. You know, mm-hmm. that, that long single take where it's going back and forth. So um, so I was, well, first of all, uh, I, I found out at the last minute. Uh, so he never formally asked if he could do that. But I didn't mind. I mean, I was just, I was flattered that someone thought this worthy enough to be, uh, to be reenacted. But uh, when I watched it, um, Again, it, just picture how that could easily, just picture how badly done, how how cliched it could have been uh, done, and that's what the physical, that, that's what the performance was. It was yeah. basically a cliche you could imagine, like Kendra came out like with a whip and she was in leather, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and like they spent more time like almost attacking each other and like talking like, and you know, to the point where the dialogue was just kind of lost because everyone was sort of smirking about how, you know, like Kendra was spanking Yan, which didn't even happen in the movie. <laughs> so it was just, and it was, and that was the most awkward conversation afterwards because they both came up to me, you know, wide eyed. Yeah. Oh, what did you think? And uh, just like, uh, <laughs> some, some, something should stay on screen and not on stage. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, so uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and and that's and going going back to the film in general, it's like one of the things that impressed me uh, this time is that it's really it it occurred to me though it's even though it's it does have considerable length to it, it's almost 
40 minutes. It's it's only really three or four scenes. It's only like four real scenes in the movie. <laughs> and uh and though so naturally those scenes they get stretched out, but the fact of the matter is you're you're so into those individual moments and I I think they're the the one scene where uh Yan and uh Elise are making love. It's like that is such an amazing it's such an amazing scene. It's like we've seen that type of sort of reconcili reconciliatory uh moment between characters before and you know just sort of getting the inner thoughts of them but the way that you do it and the way you intercut with uh the other the rest of the material in there is in going back to the first scene is just absolutely it it builds to it 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 really has a truly Im impressive impact in terms of being a really great example of how you can ex express a great number of things while just doing just through starting with one simple idea. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, as much as, as much as this film features characters who openly talk about how they're feeling, uh, I also felt like it was important to have some scenes where visual, like the visuals would tell the story. And I felt like in that scene, the intercutting between, uh, you know, what's what he's doing with her in bed and what he's imagining what he would rather be doing is mm -hmm. that that was something very conscious and uh it definitely resonated with people. And I think for me the most heartbreaking part of that scene is at the end when he kind of collapses on her and starts crying and then she says, Oh, I love you too. Yeah. And like that's I mean that's something that even gets me every time I see that because it's just so I, it, it was just, and, and that, that that was another thing too, because that was um, that was a pretty crucial scene, and it it really did require uh, actors who were comfortable with that. Yeah. And um, you know, one of the great things about this film that separated it from the other stuff that I did was that we actually did two to three weeks of rehearsal beforehand, mm -hmm. uh, and that's something you don't always get a chance to do, especially like in DIY in situations, because, you know, you're lucky if you have access to a location for four or five hours, let alone, you know, weeks ahead of the time. Right. So, um, so through rehearsal, we, you know, we talked about what we wanted to accomplish, what we were comfortable doing, and uh, I've always, you know, I've always been very open and honest with the actors that I've worked with. I mean, when you work with me, there's no surprises. It's not like they showed up on set and I was like, okay, well, by the way, we're going to be doing the sex scene now. So, uh, take it all off. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, so we talked about that ahead of time and, um, and it was funny because I think, uh, this is a bit of a BTS like, behind the scenes thing, but I think like the first time we rehearsed that scene, uh, Stephanie at the end, like she laughed and she's like, Oh, can we do that again? <laughs> so, uh, so that's, that's, that, that, that's when I knew like, okay, these guys are, great and we'll be able to accomplish this mm -hmm. so um i we've talked about stephanie a lot but i did want to mention uh jocelyn haas who played yan uh because his story is very interesting because his background prior to being in eroticite was as a stand-up comedian oh wow so this yeah uh, <laughs> and uh so yeah uh, and uh so this was actually his first uh, dramatic role that he took on Mm. Uh, and, and as you can probably imagine, like casting this character was very, very important. And, uh, you know, we had different kind of actors come out 
although not as much as the actresses, because I think, because I made it very clear that at some point there would be some male nudity, mm-hmm. and, and I think that, that turned off some people. Although there was, uh, oh yeah, actually now that I'm thinking about it, wait, uh, there was this one guy who answered my ad, and I made it pretty clear, like, it, I'm always, ne- I'm, I'm never quite sure when I'm, when I'm casting, like, what's the list for ages, because, you know, <laughs> someone, someone can be 20, but look 40, and vice yeah. versa. But I made it clear like this was supposed to be, you know, a, a young man kind of, you know, maybe yeah. in his mid-20s, mid-30s. Uh, but this one guy, <laughs> this one guy answered an ad and uh, I'm not sure, he was trying to promote himself as both a cinematographer and an actor because he owned a, a red camera. So he was like, oh, if you're looking for someone to shoot your film, I'd be happy to do it. Mm-hmm. And by the way, uh, this is what I look like naked if you want to cast me as Yan. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was, I was treated to this uh, gallery of, uh, and, you know, not a gallery of like the guy who must have been like in his late sixties, early seventies. Oh wow! And uh, a gallery of various books. <laughs> and uh, so, <laughs> so I mean, you know, so that's uh, so that's something. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, and, and so but so obviously at some point I got a little discouraged because I was like, oh, am I really gonna? Am I, am I going to have to end up playing the role myself? Because uh, I do sometimes moonlight as an actor, even mm-hmm. though I, I can't really act, but people are kind enough to cast me in their films. Um, but then eventually, Jocelyn an- answered the ad, and we were doing the rehearsals uh, at our apartment. And the minute he showed up at the door, I had a feeling that this was going to be the guy. Uh, there was just a kind of a vulnerability in him, you know, this eagerness to please that kind of reminded me of me in some respects. Yeah. So, and then of course, so it was funny because like, I think he was here and like his audition last three hours and I think we spent like two and a half just talking. Uh, and then eventually we realized, wait, you should probably read some of these sides so we can see if he can act. And, uh, <laughs> he did it and he, you know, he knocked it out of the park and, um, and, and since then he's gone on to like, he's, he's a pretty big deal now because he was on the revival of the show heroes. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Wow. He, um, I'd have to look it up, but I know he had a pretty pivotal role in that. And he's sort of gone on to bigger things, but, uh, but we're still in touch every once in a while. And, uh, you know, he still lists this on his CV. So I, I can only assume he's still proud of his work, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, he's gone on to big things. Oh yeah, and all yeah, all all three of the actors do really good jobs. I mean, it's because in in it, and that's important because of the fact that all three characters are there are certain things that need to happen with all three characters. I mean, technically, I you could almost argue that Kendra's probably the easiest one to get around because she's kind of a sociopath. So I mean she's she's kind of a sociopath and so it's like she's she has no problem hurting you know either of these characters and mm-hmm. so but the fact of the matter is it's like there is there is something about each of these characters that needs to come out and you definitely need actors who are able to uh bring that out and I think that's one of the that's one of the great things that I really liked about the film is that and that's why that's why the movie works the way it does is because of the fact that you have to believe all three of these characters you have to you have to get into the heads of all three of these characters and i think you really do oh yeah i mean the funny thing about uh kendra she was played by uh lisa tapa and um it's funny because uh um she, she she's done a, a lot of uh indie work in in montreal 
Mm-hmm. Um, but like, if you were to see her in eroticized and then you meet her in person, uh, you couldn't possibly meet a more genuine, warm, kind <laughs> person. Uh, she's a she's a mother, so like on uh, on one of the days, I think we ended up having to shoot on Mother's Day. So I think at some point when she was done, like her kid showed up and <laughs> just and, you know, considering that what she was, I think this was like the big restaurant scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, so considering like some of the things that she had just said, it was just so weird to see her with, with her daughter. <laughs> and, you know, um, but yeah, but I'm glad you uh, you pointed out uh, her as well because. Um, people who watch the film uh, have sort of split reactions to that particular performance. Um, you know, there's people like yourself who understand that, you know, she is supposed to be a sociopath and she's supposed to get into the heads of these characters. And, you know, when you are that kind of person, you talk a certain way and act a certain way. Uh, whereas some people, when they review the film, um, you know, they kind of pointed out that they felt that that character might have been a bit of a stretch or that it wasn't a very natural performance. And when people say stuff like that, uh, I, I do get a little defensive just because I'm, I'm very proud of the work she did in the film and, the, and her performance. But to maybe give you a bit of a background on what was the inspiration for Kendra, uh, it was very much uh, um, the character, this might sound a little silly, but the character Colonel Hans Landa from Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> uh, and, 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 I, and I'll tell you why. And I think uh, I think Quentin Tarantino said this about uh, Hans Landa, but you know uh, that character was someone, you could imagine him getting up at four in the morning and looking in a mirror and practicing everything that he wants to say and how he wants to say it and, you know, pretty much laying out how he's going to approach any given situation. Because like, you know, when you see him interact with characters in the film, it's very cold and calculated. And like, he knows, you know what I mean? Like he knows what he wants to get out of people. He plays mind games. And so that was very much the inspiration for Kendra. Um, And again, I don't want to spoil the ending, but you know, especially when you find out at the end, certain things that yeah. happened were meant to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it sort of explains why she she acts and talks a certain way. Because again, you you know, this this oh God, it, it really is hard to talk about spoiling it. Yeah, but, I know. But you, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like it's like yeah. you understand that this was a carefully crafted plot. So yeah. you get, get the impression that she was, you know, she spent time planning exactly how she was going to do this and what she was going to say. So, um, so that's why, like, the character might have a bit of a, I don't want to say an artificial feel, but you know what I mean? Like, it feels very calculated compared to, right. say, Yan and Elise, who are a little more organic in terms mm-hmm. of how they interact with each other. So that was sort of the inspiration behind Kendra, and, I, and I'm always happy when people get it. But there, there have been enough people out there who didn't get it, and I just wanted to get that on the record. Like, that was the mm-hmm. idea behind Kendra. Yeah. Well, let's transition away from Arawside. And but before we do that, uh, where can people uh, find you on uh, YouTube? Uh, you could just it's YouTube.com/slash Matthew Saliva, and uh, and again you'll find Arawside, and you'll find a whole bunch of uh, silly intros that I guess we're gonna be talking about soon. Yeah, we can go ahead and get get into that. So one of the things that I really was interested in talking to you about. Uh, in addition to Ross, is the fact that you were, for a time, you were a uh, theater manager at the Carlton Cinema in uh, Toronto. And uh, 
why don't you you can because you can probably explain it better than I can. Uh, what exactly were you uh, in charge of when you were uh, working up there? Sure. Yes. Uh, so, um, so four years ago, I moved to Toronto, and uh, in the first year, um, I had a bit of a struggle finding work, um, which should have given me a, a which should have been like a, a taste of things to come as far as what kind of city Toronto is. Um, but in between looking for work, I would spend my time at the Carlton Cinema. Uh, a lot of that had to do with the fact that. You know, Toronto being such an expensive city to live in, um, the Carlton's uh, the, the, the admission prices were very, very reasonable. And uh, every Tuesday they would do these $5 Tuesdays. So, mm-hmm. um, so I would be there a lot. And I got to know some of the staff and some of the management there. And uh, yeah, at some point um, the manager was leaving. Uh, she was moving to Ottawa and she remembered me because I was practically living there and uh, going there all the time. So, you know, she told me that, you know, they're looking to hire a new manager and that, you know, she would put in the good word for me and that I should send my, re- <clears throat> excuse me, my resume in uh, ASAP. So I did that. And, um, and yeah, so I was, I was initially hired to be the, the manager at the Carlton Cinema. Um, but, you know, one of the things that really attracted me about working there was the fact that um, they would do a lot of the, fun uh, events um like they like the carlton was the official home of the room so like every last saturday of the month <laughs> they would do a midnight screening of the room and um they would do these sort of um uh these uh, charity uh movie marathons mm-hmm. uh to raise money for local things and i think by the time that i got there uh the, the marathon that they had set up was called uh, k-job which was a nicholas cage marathon <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, so we showed the Raising Arizona adaptation face-off and the Wicker Man. And uh, and something very interesting happened because, like, as soon as I got there, like, I I wanted to do more uh, repertory stuff Mm because I just felt like um, no one was really doing that in the city. And that that was actually something, if you don't mind me just breaking up on a tangent here, uh, that was something that kind of struck me when I first moved to Toronto because everyone was talking about how it's film town. And in some respects, it is because, you know, you obviously have tip and whatnot. Yeah. But like, you know, a lot, a lot of people were talking about, oh, you know, you've got to go to this theater and that theater because there's so many awesome things going on. And, and I would go to these places and, you know, uh, a lot we have like at least three theaters in the city that are over 100 years old. So um, from an architecture point of view, it was really nice to see these buildings. But as far as the programming went, a lot of it was really just like second run commercial stuff. So, mm-hmm. so uh, that kind of stress. So when I got, when I was finally in an, uh, when I finally had the opportunity to, to be in a position where I could, um, uh, create change and start doing more fun events, uh, right from the get go, I was talking to head office about doing, you know, monthly film screenings and they were a little hesitant at first, um, because they thought this would be a very expensive endeavor and whatnot. Uh, but I think what really sold them was that when we did the K job, uh, when the time came to show the Wicker Man, uh, we had people like the Wicker Man was practically sold out. We had people willing to pay twenty bucks just to see the Wicker Man. <laughs> uh, and so, and so at the end of the day, you know, for better or for worse, money is what talks. So I guess you know when I when I told them like, look, you know, this we need to capitalize on this. Um, they, you know, they eventually got on board. And so, so yeah, I mean, I, uh, so in addition to my job as a manager, I sort of parlayed that into a career as a, a film programmer, 
Uh, so I launched the uh, the Carlton Midnight Society, uh, which was uh, which was really at, and that was something else too because I was from Montreal where we have this tradition of midnight movies, and yeah. that didn't seem to really exist in Toronto outside of like the Midnight Madness uh, festival mm-hmm. that's part two. So we we so we launched that, and uh, and I'll never forget it because the very first thing, very first film we showed was uh, Turkish Spider Man versus Captain Turkish America. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we we did like a superhero knockoff costume contest, so people yeah. showed up as like Turkish Ninja Turtles and Turkish Catwoman, and that. <laughs> and, and it was funny. I mean, we for the first one we we drew sort of a modest crowd because I think some people thought this was a joke mm-hmm. because we would run lots of funny sort of cheeky uh, trailers and commercials before like our regular programming. So I think some people weren't sure if this was actually a real event. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, when, but then the next month we showed uh, Terminator two shocking dark, uh, starring, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Italian non-union uh, equivalent. <laughs> and, uh, and like the audience doubled their laughs and uh, it really just kind of kept going up until the point where we were doing like, you know, sell out after sell out. And um, so, yeah, so, I mean, basically my duties were, uh, you know, day-to-day managing, you know, as far as, like, you know, making sure staff are doing their work and making sure projection project, projectors are running properly, handling cash and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then at the same time, I also did a lot of creative stuff there. And in many respects, that kind of changed the reputation of the Carlton. It sort of became uh, a very hip uh, place to be. And... And, and again, like, I mean, I, I definitely, and I want this, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily take credit for starting something here in Toronto, but like, I do know that before we, before I started working at the Carlton, like, repertory stuff was far and few in between. And once we started doing stuff at the Carlton, pretty soon, most uh, smaller indie theaters were doing the same thing too, mm-hmm. which was great, you know, for film fans, because, yeah. you know, as but, you know, as someone who's trying to promote an event, like sometimes that became the scourge of our industry because, you know, you get people who would double book events on the same night as you. Right. Uh, but, I mean, at the same time, it was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, through the series, I got to meet a lot of people who became very good friends of mine in the city. And uh, it was, in many respects, it was really the time of my life because I kind of felt that I found my true calling by doing these events at the Carlton. You see, because the thing about filmmaking was that as much as I love making movies, uh, my films have a tendency to play in every other country across the world except the one that it was made in. (laughs) So, uh, so I don't. So it's so it's very rare that I ever have a chance to watch my films with an audience. Yeah. Uh, Whereas with, you know, with the work I was doing at the Carlton, I was always hosting these events and I would you know, interact with people before and after. So I felt that the the gratitude and the sense of uh, accomplishment was a little more uh, apparent and uh, instant than it mm-hmm. might have been filmmaking. Well, that's that's fantastic. And yeah, part of the re- a big part of the reason I wanted to talk about that is that I, I work for a uh, major chain theater. I, I'd rather not say which one because, you know, this is going to be on the internet, but... The fact of the matter is, it's like I I work for one of the major uh, chains in America, and uh, it's it's a very different experience from that. And I mean, even though Atlanta, I know Atlanta has some really interesting. Uh, I mean, they've got the Plaza in downtown Atlanta, which does 
Rocky Horror every I at least every Friday. I think every Friday and Saturday night. But I mean, oh, they nice. were one of the few theaters in America a few years ago to actually book the interview after all that controversy happened. Oh yes. Oh yeah. And, I remember. <laughs> uh, they they do a lot of uh, repertory uh, screens and uh, special screens and. I, I saw The Shining there a couple of years ago, um, mm-hmm. and they that, they were the only theater in town uh, when uh, Inland Empire, the David Lynch film, air, uh, opened. They were one of the few theaters to show there, and I, I went there a lot when I was in college and living down in downtown Atlanta, so I got to see a lot of movies there, um, and I really, it's, it's a little two-theater Auditor- it's a little two theater uh building and uh you know it, it's it's just a really nice atmosphere i love that i mean that's very different from the building that i work at which is basically a, a multiplex and uh right. you know we we will occasionally get like fathom events and stuff like that but we don't really we don't have a whole lot of leeway to we don't really have leeway to program our own stuff. And that's one of the things that I was so fascinated about with uh, your your experience at movie theaters, that you're able to have that leeway. And part of that is because you're away from a larger corporate structure in that respect. And so you've got a little bit more freedom. Uh, how, how exactly does... How, how exactly... And I guess one of the things that I was kind of curious about is that how how do you sort of go about pitching that type of idea versus uh, just showing the, you know, the latest movies that are out now? Well, um, the thing about the Carlton, well, first I wanted to mention, because uh, the Carlton, we had uh, nine screens. So uh, in, in some, in some respects, uh, this was uh, a multiplex, although, um, I, I hesitate, I, I very rarely would use, would use that term just because when you think multiplex, you know, you think of the big chain theaters yeah. and I mean, um, but, and, you know, and, and we would occasionally get some first run stuff, but, um, one of the reasons why we were able to do a lot of rep, repertory programming was because, um, it was because of where we were located. Uh, now I don't know how it really works in the States, but like, I know, uh, in Toronto or in Toronto, like the major chain Cineplex, yeah. like there be, so, uh, and so we were sandwiched between two Cineplex locations, mm-hmm. uh, down in the downtown core. So a lot of, uh, a lot of what, uh, in terms of new films, a lot of what we would get would very much depend on what Cineplex would choose to draw. Yeah. So, uh, so because we weren't always getting uh, the first run stuff, uh, we were able to do a lot of independent bookings. We had a lot of like film festivals that would uh, do their shows uh, at our theater, mm-hmm. and uh, you know uh, we would have the opportunity to do a lot of fun uh, programming. So, uh, so that was definitely a big advantage as far as pitching it goes. Um, again, I was just I, I think I, I felt that there was a, a void in the city. Like I felt that. There, you know, there's enough people out there who love horror, who love, you know, genre cinema that, you know, it was worth it at the very least giving it a six month run, which is what we did in the beginning. Like when I mm-hmm. first started, I decided the idea was that this was meant to go until December. And, you know, based on how the screenings did, we would decide to continue it after that. 
So, um, so it was very, it was very uh, nerve wracking at times because you know I became almost addicted to checking pre-sale tickets for each <laughs> event, you know, to make sure that we were, you know, uh, putting butts in seats. Yeah. So, so yeah, we. So, um, although I, there is a, I do have a bit of an interesting story as far as the the initial uh, events that we did. Um, cause I, uh, one of the first films that we, that I wanted to show, uh, was a film called, was a film called, uh, Necromantic. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's a, it's a 1987 film from Germany. And I think the title pretty much says all you need to know about <laughs> it. Uh, so, um, so we had booked Necromantic and, uh, then I got an email from the, from head office with the subject title Necromantic. <laughs> And, uh, so, uh, and basically, you know, cause the way it worked, uh, um, cause there were various owners of the, uh, the Carlton mm-hmm. and at the time we didn't have the, the ability to like upload trailers on our website. That was something that their web team would do. So, uh, so when it came time to put up information for Necromantic, I sent them a synopsis as well as a link to the trailer. And, uh, in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have sent them that link because when they watched the trailer, uh, I was subject to, uh, quite a talking to by head <laughs> about, uh, you know, how, you know, uh, we, we, you know, this is a family theater. We can't have this kind of thing playing. And, you know, in retrospect, they were probably right because I'm trying to imagine like kids coming to see the Minions movie and then there's like a poster for Necromantic. Yeah. <laughs> coming through. So, uh, so so once in a while they would like shoot down some of the choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, I think they saw that, you know, I was being very responsible with the way I was programming stuff. Like as much as I would love to program, like I, I like to think that I had a good balance of programming stuff that people wanted to see and stuff that people maybe needed to see because, you know, uh, the thing about programming is that, um, I mean, there's tons of films that I would love to show, but if I wasn't so confident that I was the only person that would come out to see them, yeah. uh, I, you know what I mean? So it's a very fine tightrope. But we, the Midnight Society very much was, was sold on the concept that, you know, we would show the kind of cult films that other people don't necessarily show. Like, I love Plan 9 from Outer Space and mm-hmm. Night of the Living Dead, but, like, these are films that have been sort of projected to death. Yeah. And so... And so this is why we sort of looked out for, uh, like, especially in that first year, we did a lot of films from around the world. Like in December, for example, when uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens came out, uh, we screened Turkish Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a very interesting experience because we actually, uh, for some reason, Cineplex chose not to pick up that film. So we got Star Wars The Force Awakens. (laughs) So uh, I think there's even a picture somewhere where we programmed it to play in what, like, like uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens is obviously in our biggest theater. Yeah. And then right next to it, we played Turkish Star Wars. So, like, there's a picture, like, of the two marquees, Turkish Star Wars and The Force Awakens side by side. <laughs> and, what, and what was really interesting was that we had, like, this huge line, and people were saying, oh, is this for The Force Awakens? And I was like, no, this is for Turkish Star Wars. Like, uh, <laughs> and, like more people were coming to see that than yeah. uh, the Star Wars. So, um... So, yeah, I mean, you know, and so at some point it got to a point where they just started trusting me and I was just kind of taking care of uh, of a lot of the booking of that stuff Uh, because that's something else too. There's a difference between programming and booking. Like, um, 
you know, when we eventually got new owners, uh, I was still programming rep stuff, but like, you know, they had their booker that would be the one who would actually contact yeah. you know, studio. But, um, in that first year that we did it, I had to sort of take on the booking duties and I actually have a really funny story about this. I'm not going to name names just on right. case anyone listens to this, but, um, but anyway, so uh, one of the first things I wanted to do, uh, even before there was a Midnight Society, uh, there a documentary had come out called uh, Lost Soul, the uh, the Doom Journey of Richard Stanley. Uh, it was it was a documentary about the making of the Island of Doctor Moreau from 1996. Okay. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a fascinating documentary. I mean, again, no, that's I haven't. Oh, it's it, it's a podcast in itself. That's, <laughs> that's a, it's such a fascinating story. So I wanted to program that and then show the 1996 Island of Dr. Moreau after that. Mm-hmm. So I, I sent the films to the booker and I'm like, you know, this is what I'd like to book. Um, so, and, and again, uh, the, the name of the documentary was Lost Soul, The Doom Journey, you know, yada, yada, yada. So then a day or two passed and then the booker got back to me and they were like, okay, so these films are booked. And I was like, wow, that's quick. That's amazing. But then I looked at our booking sheet and instead of Lost Soul, uh, the film that the booker had booked was Soul Boys, the story of Spandau Ballet. You know the, <laughs> you know the '80s the pop band there that sang that oh, song. Wow. That true. So uh, so we had to show that for a week. <laughs> oh uh, but, man. But you know we used that opportunity because no one obviously came. We used that opportunity to switch out you know pot lights and track lights in the theater because <laughs> it was always empty. So um, so yes, yeah, so when that happened, I was like, okay. Obviously, I'm going to have to try and do this myself. So um, so that was something I had never done, like getting in touch with studios and such. So that was an interesting experience. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so uh, basically, you know, for the longest time, um, it, things were running smoothly. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, eventually we did get bought out by, uh, by a chain based in Canada. I won't name the name, but I guess anyone who knows the Carlton will know who I'm talking about. And um, it was one of these situations where, you know, uh, it's it's like, you know, the, the, there was a big meeting and, you know, it's it's one of those things where they're saying, like, you know, we love everything about you. You know, we, we don't want you to change, except we want you to change. <laughs> you, know, we, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, so, um, so it seemed like, so there was still a Midnight Society up until, like, the end of my run there. But it seemed like every three or four months we were always circulating around the conversation. We would always end up talking, oh, you know, should we still keep doing these rep screenings? Is it worth yeah. it? You know, we only, we have X amount of money to spend and we really don't want to waste it on this. So there was a lot of fighting to, you know, we, so I, we would have to make like uh, spreadsheets of, you know, how much it costs to book a film, you know, how much did we make net and how much concessions did we sell? Yeah. And so, you know, so we would always get renewed, but there was always that sense of impending doom that at any point this could sort of stop. Yeah. Um, but uh, but we did have a good run. It went from July 2015 to about January 2018. And um, towards the end, uh, the writing was sort of on the wall. Uh, because, like, in addition to managing and doing programming, I was also doing a lot of the uh, social media for, for the Carlton. Yeah. And um, and that was something I really excelled at as well because I know when we when I started there I think the Carlton page had about fourteen hundred likes and by the time I was done they had like forty five hundred likes <laughs> so we took that up but then like uh, the head office sort of uh, brought in their own person to do social media for us and um, and again uh, this 
you know, they, they didn't try to really hide the fact that they wanted to emulate Cineplex. So they would, you know, so a lot of the stuff that they would post would be very Cineplex in nature. And I still had access to our social media because I would use it to promote all the indie stuff and they yeah. would promote like, the bigger stuff. But uh, as one person said to me once when they commented, uh, comment on social media, like it was our, our page was very schizophrenic. Because, you know, you would have, you know, like me talking about, let's say, a big Godzilla marathon that we're going to do. And then, you know, that that post would get buried under a bunch of, you know, minions, gifts and uh, silly <laughs> things like that. And and also, and, and bless, bless this person's hearts, because, you know, I've spoken to her many times and she's actually a very nice person. But um, are, are you familiar at all with the, uh, the Spoonie one? I don't believe so. Okay, well, uh, he's he's a YouTube reviewer, and he did a he did a riff on uh, something. It was a it was a video game store called Game Crazy. It was like a, their training video. And uh, if you haven't seen this, stop the podcast and go <laughs> watch it out. Uh, because basically, uh, and I uh, so at some point during their training video, they have a, a woman named Zelda Scott, and uh, she spouts some of the whitest ebonics that you can imagine. Like she's, <laughs> and so, so, uh, so the thing is, and I guess you know the new head office body would be hip to talk in a very hip way, you know, because we're cool and that. Uh. So, um, and so, so they would post things like, "Hey, it's five dollar Tuesdays. Make sure to bring your bay down to our hood." You heard? Oh. And it's just yeah. So basically, like. This person made made Zelda Scott seem politically correct by comparison. <laughs> so, um, so, and there was more of that happening, and uh, and then at some point they just took the social media thing away from me altogether. Yeah. And when that happened, that's when I was like, okay, I think, you know, I don't think there's going to be much more of this stuff going on. And then, sure enough, uh, I eventually got. Uh, I, I was eventually uh, released without cause, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, um, and and that's what I mean. I mean, that's uh, that that was a whole big thing in of itself because I really poured my my blood, sweat, and tears into that place. Um, so that that was a bit of a bitter swallow, pill to swallow. Yeah. But uh, but you know, every once in a while, I kind of keep tabs, almost like you know, like almost like you do with an ex. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but. Uh, but you know, but not too much. But you know, once in a while, I'll kind of take a peek and see what they're up to. Yeah. And to be honest, um, as as far as like the, the Facebook goes, I think they're still at forty five hundred likes, so that hasn't moved at all. <laughs> and uh, any and every bit of uh, fun that mu- that was once associated with that place is gone now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they still do the room every month, but I've noticed that uh, other theaters in Toronto are starting to show the room as well. And uh, I know when I was there, uh, the room was always an exclusive thing. Like the Carlton yeah. was the place you could come to. And now that other theaters are starting to do it and also showing it at a much more accessible time, like 9.30, so more people could come see it. I think once word gets around that people can see the room at a bigger theater, I'm not sure what the future would hold for the Carlton because... Um, you know, it's just like because because as things stand, you know, when at least when I was here at the Carlton, like we weren't always getting the big movies. So yeah. 
Um, so if you're not getting big movies, you know, you've got to supplement that with other kinds of content. And if you're not going to do rep stuff, then you're pretty like, so you're not getting big movies and you're not getting, you know, classic films. So what are you showing? So, and now it seems like, and again, I mean, I'm not part of that anymore. So I mean, I could be completely off the mark here, but it seems like a lot of the stuff that's being shown is sort of like VOD directed video kind of things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, like on one, on one hand, it, it, it is a bit of a shame. I mean, maybe I feel a little sadder had the circumstances around my departure been a little different. Like if I, if I quit on my own accord, I would probably yeah. be sad that my legacy was kind of thrown out. But, you know, considering that, um, considering how I was let go, uh, I'd be lying if I said I didn't get some small satisfaction <laughs> in the fact that their one attempt at doing something fun was like a, uh, a screening of the Wedding Crashers, which, you know, of course, everyone yeah. wants to see again on the big screen. Uh, and uh, I think from what I was told, maybe two people showed up to that. <laughs> so yeah. if, I, if I needed any sort of validation or affirmation of my the impact that I had while working there, I have it now. So, um yeah. So yeah, so I mean, but I'm proud of everything I did there. We we did a lot of fun stuff. I got to meet some wonderful customers. Uh, there was this one really sweet lady who, uh, you know, she because back when I was having a lot of health problems, uh, you know, she would recommend doctors to me, and she would mm-hmm. always follow up, make sure I was seeing the right people. Uh, she found out that my wife and I have cats, so she got little presents for the cats and everything. <laughs> so it was really sweet and. Uh, uh, to be honest, like I kind of, as much as I also, as much as I miss doing these events, I also miss a lot of these customers that I got to know on a first name basis. And um, but yeah, you know, I mean, listen, I don't, I don't wish them any particular harm. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I think you know that's what happens when you let the heart and soul of Carlton go. You know, it turns yeah. into what it turns into. Yeah. Well, that was yeah. I mean that, and that that's one of those that's one of those things. It, it that. You know, hear, hearing you talk about that sort of reminds me of uh, what uh, Philip Seymour Ho- Lester Bangs, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in Almost Famous is telling uh, Patrick Fugit's character about like the way commercial commercialization is t- was taken over rock and roll at the time, and yeah, just the fact that you have it it is it is very unfortunate. Sort of what's happening is. You know, it's like yes, you understand to a certain extent that like corporations and big companies, they have a certain way of doing things, a certain way that they crunch the numbers. But at the same time, that sort of takes the fun out of something like that. Yeah, and 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 again, like I mean, uh, it's funny because like even under the previous owners, uh, we were always sort of the the black sheep of the family, uh, just because I think of where we were located. Because, so because. Because um, Carlton was part of a, a chain, like it, it wasn't one of the big chains, obviously, right. but it, it was a smaller indie chain. And like the other theaters that were like, like we had our sister theater, uh, Market Square, and that was located. And because that was located in a different part of the city, uh, they were able to get all the first run stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, but even they started like once we started doing some fun events, like they started doing their own midnight screenings and uh, like head office put. Uh, the kibosh on that pretty quickly uh, just because like you know you, you guys are a first run theater you don't do this kind of stuff and yeah. um, 
And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, you never thought they would do that with us because, you know, that's sort of our bread and butter. That's what, we're, that's what we were known for. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's a, it's a shame that that happened. But on the other hand, uh, the last event that we did there was uh, a double bill of uh, Return to Newcomb High, Volume 1, and Return 2, Return to Newcomb High, Volume 2. <laughs> Uh, with Troma, it's where Lloyd Kaufman came up and the Troma team was there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a really wonderful experience because uh, uh, at the end of the screen, uh, he presented me with an honorary Troma diploma for supporting <laughs> independent film. And I got like an animation cell from the Talks of Crusaders. And the really big thing is that we filmed a couple of promos for the Troma website and I got to be in one of them. So I get to tell people I was directed by Lloyd Kaufman. So, you know, the same guy who directed James Gunn, who would go on to do, you know, the uh, Guardians of yeah. the Galaxy films. Yeah. So, so, in many respects, I can't imagine a better way to go out on. I mean, um, so, so yeah, I mean, like, I'm very proud of what we did. And um, I know the people who came uh, had a great time. Uh, at some point, the Midnight Society sort of extended and we started doing uh, fun sketches before our films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably one of the, the most famous one, or at least my favorite, was when we showed uh, Jacob's Ladder. Uh, we did a sketch at the beginning where uh, we had um, we had like you know quote unquote someone hiding under this blanket, and uh, I introduced the film and I was talking about how we have the titular character from Jacob's Ladder. Uh, <laughs> you know we we have uh, Tim Robbins, and so I pulled down the sheet and there's a ladder there instead of Tim Robbins. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, one of my friends played an employee at the Carlton and I was like, you know, Hey, you were in charge of booking tonight's guest, right? He was like, yes. And I was like, well, who did I ask you to book? And he said, Jacob's ladder. Here's Jacob's ladder. And so, uh, and then eventually it really grew to an absurd thing where at some point the ladder started talking <laughs> and, uh, and like we did a, we, we, we did a thing where like, uh, the ladder and I kind of fell in love, but, uh, at some point, uh, at some point I leave and then the ladder sings from beginning to end of the la- We have a ladder sing, uh, um, the rose by Bette Midler. <laughs> you, you, you. You, you, it's funny because so it's so and it was such it was such a great moment because everyone laughed where I wanted them to laugh and <laughs> and you know there was there was a couple of people who were like you know get on with it just show the movie uh, but most people really liked it and I always like to tell people because people ask me you know are you ever going to make another film and and I'm not sure because obviously in my right now I'm not really in a situation where I can do that but I mm-hmm. I always point them in the direction of that Jacob's Ladder intro because. Uh, that's pro- at least for the time being, that's probably the closest thing to a, sh- a new film that I'll probably make for a while. <laughs> uh, so we, we did a lot of fun things, and then some of the, some of those people that I worked with would go on to do their own screening series at other theaters mm-hmm. in town. So I'm kind of really proud of that. That you know we uh, we sort of developed you know the Midnight Society developed its proteges who would go on to do some really fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that that. Yeah, that sounds fantastic, and it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that you know it. It s- sounds like it's obviously uh, not really happening at the Carlton anymore, but it does sound like there there has been uh, people picking that up, picking picking up the reins of that and continuing that at other theaters. So that is that is good to hear. So. And it sounds like a lot of fun. It, it whenever you would talk about them on social media and promotion promote them on social media, I was always envious of the fact that I'm 
in Georgia. And it's like, yeah, we don't. I wish I was up there doing that. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, well, I mean, I guess the only advice I could give for that is, uh, um, I mean, if, is to maybe try to take some first run stuff and sort of own it and maybe try to do something fun around that idea. Yeah. You know, like, like one thing that we did uh, now, mind you, this was for a repertory thing, but, you know, had I still stayed on at the Carlton uh, and had they still been receptive to the idea of doing fun things, we might have actually applied this to a first-run movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, but one thing we did was something called Carlton 4D. And uh, so, I mean, you obviously, you know, about 4DX technology. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so the thing, well, the thing about us, um, so as you, as you may gather when you watch some of these intros, like our theaters, like our auditoriums weren't the biggest in town. Like, you know, like let's say if we would pick up the Avengers second run, you know, we would promote it like, you know, you've seen Avengers in IMAX, now see it in shoebox. And <laughs> so, you know, we, we kind of own that kind of thing. So, so when we did that, we did a Carlton 40 screening of Friday the 13th, uh, the final chapter. And uh, so basically we had a, a, an in-person Jason who would stalk people in the audience mm-hmm. and we would, uh, you know, we would squirt people with uh, squirt bottles <laughs> and like throw grapes and spaghetti at people like to simulate blood and guts and everything. Yeah. And, uh, and so, um, so that was a lot of fun. People really enjoyed that experience. And, and this is maybe something you could potentially do with a your theater in the sense that like um, we, we always thought that um, like, again, if this were to continue uh, that if, and when we would get uh, at the time, Darren Aronofsky's mother, that we would have done a 4d version of that movie, like a Carlton 4d. And you can imagine, especially certain, especially certain moments at the end, how yeah. that could have gone a certain way. So I don't know. I mean, maybe that's something you guys can, do yeah like uh, i mean i don't know how receptive they are to that but yeah i I don't know it'd be it'd be interesting i mean we're the thing is it's like with us we're we're kind of it's weird because of the fact that we are sort of in the same situation you are where the carlton it was in the sense that we don't necessarily get stuff because we're so close to another theater so we so we have so we're not necessarily going to get everything that comes out. And so, yeah, I mean, but listening to, and we have uh, the the company I work for, which, I mean, this is kind of going to out me, is they have the uh, Terror Cinema in Buckhead, which they, they're very much independent theater. But, I mean, they're still run by the corporation, but it's like they, right. they show indie films, and it's like they can show them for longer periods of time. They do the Jewish and the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival down there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they also have something to do with the Atlanta Film Festival as well. So, I mean, and and yeah, it's like we we have, like, so many of these movies where it's like we had Black Panther for, like, a couple weeks after it even came out on Blu-ray. So it's oh, like, wow. okay. why? Yeah. So, I mean, we would still get a couple people going to see it, but it's like, by that point, like, uh we we why do we have some of these movies as long as we have and it's like it's sort of they those movies at a certain point those movies were wear out their welcome so i mean it it is curious i it i almost want to see sort of how receptive people above me in the corporate structure would 
be to the idea because of the fact that it's like, you know, I mean, we have we have times where it's like it's it's dog days of summer in even during the summer. Like we're like this this year we uh we got Black Panther earlier, but we didn't get uh Infinity War and we didn't get solo. So our oh. our February was kind of bare as far as attendance and stuff like that because we weren't really getting the big movies and so it's like I mean, we don't really have much going on, and it's like, what could we do to, uh, to, to sort of correct this? I mean, so well, it, you know, yeah. Well, I was going to say, as a, this is something that we did too, and and maybe it's a situation that you can do as well at, at your theater. Um, like whenever, because as much, so we would sometimes screen like fairly well-known horror films and that. But, you know, for every well-known film we show, like, I think once we showed a movie called Robo Vampire, which uh, is basically Chinese Robocop versus hopping uh, <laughs> vampires, uh, uh, hopping kung fu vampires. And uh, now, uh, I mean, we, we, had a, we had a pretty good turnout for that, but that was one of the more obscure films that you really had to be in the know to, yeah. to even... Yeah. Uh, and so what we would do as a way to maybe offset any potential profit loss was to do a late screening of like a mainstream film that we would happen to get. Yeah. So um, I forget, I, I think we might've done one or two extra screenings that night just to boost up uh, concession sales uh, um, and, you know, just to justify keeping the theater open an extra couple of hours uh, and having staff on. So I don't know if that's something that you could potentially do too, because I know that's um, like Market Square, our sister theater, when they started doing fun stuff as well, they would purposely book it outside of uh, normal operating hours. So they would either do like, I think at one point they did like a Cary Grant retrospective and they, these would be special like 11 a.m. screenings. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing I found that was very useful too, because uh, at one point uh, we, because in addition to the Midnight Society, we, I was doing other screening series and uh, we one month we did an event called uh, Going Bananas, which was a series of King Kong knockoff films. <laughs> and uh, and so, but these were happening in the afternoon, so we would have to cancel screenings of bigger movies to compensate mm -hmm. for that. So one way, one thing that I did to help sell uh, head office on that idea was to sort of uh, tie in tickets, uh, tie in the cost of a ticket with, let's say, a concession combo. Yeah. So So that way, you know, you're, you're making like that. So basically like it would be six bucks for a ticket, a small popcorn and a small drink. But basically like our small combo was $6 anyway. So because these were uh, public domain films, like, you know, we didn't have to send, um, you know, cuts of the, the proceeds to a distributor. All the money went towards the concessions, mm -hmm. which in the end went into our pockets. So uh, I don't know if that's something that you can use to sort of, promoted like if you can find it yeah. basically like you can convince them that there's a way to make money off it and that it can boost the reputation of mm -hmm. the theater um they uh, again i mean i i, I don't uh, i'm not too familiar with the american chains uh, outside of the amc of course yeah but um um so i don't know how they would respond to that but that might be something especially if mm -hmm. you're not showing anything major anyway i mean why not cancel an afternoon screening and do something yeah yeah no i mean it <clears throat> Yeah, and, <clears throat> sorry. Yeah, and listening sorry, I don't to you. Put you in a 
No, no, that's... By the way, that's... I'll just say, I don't mean to put you in a difficult spot. I don't want to put you in. But, no, no, uh, that's that's fine. I mean, you know, and it actually, you know, it's like the the wheel, it, it's funny because the wheels are kind of like turning. It's like, because I, you know, it's like I, I recently, uh, I ended up not, I ended up not getting it, which is fine, but I ended up uh, our first assistant manager at uh, our theater is leaving and they are, and I, applied for their position and one of the questions during the interview was it's like what would you do to uh what do you think you what do you have any ideas as to like sort of what you could do to uh sort of uh help the theater in terms of and and it was and all I could think of was stuff that really is kind of out of our hands as far as like well lower ticket prices lower concession mm -hmm. prices all that fun stuff uh but yeah, I mean the the idea that um, the idea of doing something like that is actually kind of interesting, and it's like it does make me wonder because I mean Atlanta is you know it it's kind of a film hub, and I mm -hmm. mean Atlanta is obvious is one of the uh, is been one of the bigger ones in recent years. I mean we're we're just north of Atlanta. And we don't really have theaters in this area that do that type of thing. Downtown Atlanta does, but mm -hmm. we don't really. So, I mean, it does make me wonder whether whether that's something that might actually be possible and might something might be something that uh, might be more res better received than I would initially think it would be. So, yeah, I mean that that's. That's definitely it. It's it's definitely got the wheels going on, and it's definitely something that I'm kind of curious about. Just at least starting to put feelers out as far as what, whether what might possibly happen with that. Because yeah, and and another thing too, because um, especially like in the, the the first year that we were doing the Midnight Society, uh, we would often target a lot of public domain and really. Um, obscure stuff to the point where, you know, even if some distributor out of some, you know, war ravaged country were to come after us, like it would, you know, uh, it's, you know, we'd cut them a check or something. So, um, basically, uh, you know, if, if to get the ball rolling, you could uh, potentially start with public domain stuff because it wouldn't really be at any cost to the yeah. theater. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but I don't know. I mean, like that's, that's entirely up to you guys, but, yeah. uh, but, but all, all I could say is that, you know, um, it's a lot of fun doing it, and I think customers really appreciate that, and uh, sometimes you'd be very surprised at how open people are to attending these events, because, you know, uh, I remember when we first did that Turkish Spider-Man film, uh, one guy came in, and, like, he was like, oh, why would I pay to, why would I pay to watch this movie, because it's on YouTube, I could just do that for free. And, you know, it's like, yeah, of course, you know, we don't hide the fact that many of these films are on DVD or Blu-ray or yeah. in some cases YouTube. But, you know, there's nothing beats going into a movie theater, uh, even though, like, uh, the, the industry is changing to the point where, you know, they almost don't want you to leave your home anymore yeah. to consume entertainment. Uh, there's still there's still cachet in going to a movie theater and watching, mm -hmm. you know, an old classic. No matter how many, even if you own it on home video at home, it's it's still something to see it on on a big screen. Yeah. But um, but I know every circumstances are different and every theater is different. So yeah. Uh, yeah. 
No, and that and yeah, I mean, it, I I completely understand what you're what you're saying as far as the theatrical experience being a very different experience. And, and yeah, I will never forget the experience I had uh, about eleven years ago watching Troll Two on the big screen. And uh, (laughs) that in a packed house in downtown Atlanta. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was that was such a crazy experience. And it's like that's always such a fun thing to do. And it's like it doesn't necessarily ultimately if you've got the right if you've got people interested in it. And it's like I do think to a certain extent people are interested in you. But you also have to give them sort of incentive to be able to do that. So to be interested in doing that. And I think that's that's one of the things that is I I loved, you know, just following what you guys were doing. And it's like I the the fact that it's like Turkish Star Wars playing <laughs> that on the same week of Force Awakens was kind of hilarious to me. It's like, oh, that would be so much fun. But uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't think we could go quite that obscure to start out. But the fact that better is, it's like, yeah, that it does. It does definitely get the uh, get get the uh, imagination going as far as what could possibly be done there. So um, I, I don't know how we are for time, but I wanted to tell you a quick story since you brought up uh, Troll 2. <laughs> um, so. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I love Troll 2. And when, when I was in Montreal, uh, I was. Uh, I was pretty instrumental in, in bringing Troll 2 to the city uh, because it had, at that time, it had just uh, broken out as, uh, as, a, as a big cult hit. Yeah. Uh, where the actors were coming out and owning it. And so I actually became pretty good friends with uh, George Hardy, the dad from Troll yeah. 2. Yeah. Uh, one of my proudest moments was, I think, at some point um, between Christmas and New Year's, he had called me to wish me a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Uh, really, really nice guy, but but this is the fun story. So um, this is going back a little bit, but like uh, in uh, in 2009, I produced a feature film called Frankenstein Unlimited. Mm-hmm. And it was basically an anthology comprised of six different films that were inspired by Frankenstein. Um, and so we had, you know, we had a Kung Fu film starring Gordon Luke and Kill Bill. Uh, we had like a crime drama. We had uh, an erotic film, which was mine. Um, but uh, before I made the, the, the segment that I had made uh, for that Frankenstein film, uh, I had an idea for a film called uh, Requiem for a Penis. And, uh, and hear me out. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so basically the story was uh, there's a, there was a Welsh uh, hippopotamus named Mr. Flip. And uh, he had a singing penis, and uh, they were constantly bickering with each other because you know the penis would want all the attention, and like uh, you know, Mr. Flip was jealous of that. And then at some point, he just decides to uh, get himself castrated, and uh, the the penis goes off to Hollywood and becomes a big star. And then Mr. Flip, you know, he regrets his decision, so he, he decides to go to Hollywood to reunite with his appendage. And uh, I, I spoke to George Hardy about this, and I had an idea where he could have played the, the, the singing penis's uh, agent. Uh, <laughs> and and it, it, it basically, I forgot the circumstances, basically it would have built up to the point where he does this classic line from Troll 2, you know, you can't spit on hospitality, I won't allow it. <laughs> and, uh, and George, in all of his, he's such a sweet man. Uh, and so he, so I, I sent him that request, and he, he wrote me back and he was like, 
wow, Matthew, uh, I don't know what to say. Can I get back to you? <laughs> and I never heard back from <laughs> So it, it's funny. So like when the dad from Troll 2 doesn't want to do that, that's when you know you should put a film on the shelf and yeah. never talk about it again. But I, it was just funny because you brought that up. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, I, I can't remember during that uh, screening of Troll 2. I want to say he was there. I think, I think George Hardy was at that screening of Troll 2 along with the uh, – Son, because they were they were doing like the tour, and that was it was sort of the build up to best worst movie being made. And I know yes. they were they were filming best worst movie on that, and uh, yeah, because actually a friend of mine who absolutely is fascinated by Troll Two, I one of my favorite times ever watching a movie was with uh, him at a birthday party he was hosting at his house, and he basically. We we did sort of the cinema interruptus where it was basically going through Troll Two, sort not quite shot at a time like Ebert would, but basically <laughs> he would stop the movie and it would be like a running yeah. commentary. It was absolutely okay, yeah. hysterical. Um, oh, and it was perfect. absolutely one of my favorite moments ever. Watching like a movie was just at Alfred's birthday, just not know what, knowing what to expect <laughs> and just being introduced to Troll Two. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. But do, do, uh, you know the, do you know the story about why it's called Troll Two? Because um, um, it's so um, it was made by uh, Claudio Fragasso, uh, yeah. who was an Italian film director. And uh, the Italians, uh, you know, God bless them. I, I love Italian genre cinema, but um, you know they they were notorious, especially in the eighties, for doing some blatant knockoffs of yeah. uh, American. Uh, Titles like the one I mentioned earlier, like the Terminator Two, Shocking Dark, which was basically <laughs> the uh, the Italian aliens and Terminator mashup you never knew you wanted to see. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but one thing that they would do is when they would release some of these films in the states, they would uh, they would release them as sort of unofficial and unauthorized sequels to established American um, franchises. So, like for right. example. Uh, so, so sometimes you would have uh, certain films that were uh, released in the States as, you know, uh, it was like a takeoff on Evil Dead. So they would call it, you know, The Evil Dead Part 2 or yeah. uh, in the case of like Dawn of the Dead, that spawned a whole bunch of unofficial sequels in Italy mm -hmm. that when they would be marketed over to the States, they would call yeah. it like Zombie. Yeah. So, uh, so what I always thought was interesting was that out of all the franchises that they could have <laughs> chosen to piggyback on, they they saw this one film from like Empire Films that starred Julia Louis Dreyfus and yeah. Sonny Bono. Like there was like you know you know that film Troll that film that that's a franchise that has hey let's call it Troll Two. So uh, so that's why like it has almost nothing to do with trolls. But they just out of all the yeah. so I always thought that was kind of funny that and then um, believe it or not there's a Troll Three. But uh, there are there are a couple different films that claim ownership to the Troll Three. Uh, like one of them is like a, a Conan ripoff, I think, called the uh, Tour, the Fighting Eagle. But when it was in the States, they called it Troll Three. And then there's another film, I think, called Quest for the Mighty Sword, that actually features one of the goblins from Troll Two. But this one, can, <laughs> but this one actually talks, and there's a very creepy scene where he's making out with a prisoner. Uh, so it's just funny, like that's there's almost a whole, you know, uh, there's oh, almost wow. a whole franchise there. But yeah. <laughs> No, and and actually, I'm I'm listening to the uh, '80s All Over podcast, and they're actually 
and and they're actually talking about a lot of the uh, Italian ripoffs and stuff like that that you're talking about. And it's like when you when you think about it in those terms, it's like yes, of course, Troll Two belongs in that category as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, and it's fun because like um, when we showed like the the Terminator knockoff. Uh, I, I gave a pretty lengthy introduction because, again, like I love Italian genre film, and when you watch stuff like Troll Two, you know it, it's it's almost hard to believe that at once upon a time, like Italy was the pinnacle of genre cinema, like from and they really were, like from 1959 to about maybe 1985, like whether it was like horror, sci-fi, thriller, westerns, uh, mm-hmm. cop films, like they they were exceptional uh, at all these. And I, I mean, I don't know how far down the rabbit hole you've gone as far as Italian cinema goes, but like obviously, like there's the Mario Babas and the Lucio Fulci's and Dario Argento's that are worth. And so it's funny, like so when you watch like a classic film like uh, Black Sunday, and then you know watch Troll Two, like it's hard to imagine that this is from the same country that in terms of the, the level of quality. Yeah. But um, I don't know, like I find like the post 80, 85 era was it's kind of interesting because you know like. Yeah, you know, a lot of the films didn't necessarily have the style of uh, their predecessors, but in some cases, I actually prefer the knockoffs to the original films because there was a whole like, like, uh, like, you know, uh, this is kind of a bit of a confession, but I never got the appeal of Conan the Barbarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just not a fan of the original film. I just think it's a little odd. Uh, although I'd, I'd be curious if they were to remake it with Schwarzenegger being where he is now. Uh, yeah. But I I enjoy like a lot of the knockoffs like uh, one of my favorites in, I think it came out in '83 was uh, You're the Hunter from the Future I don't yeah. know if you've seen that but uh, um, and I just feel like you know because they had uh, limited budgets and limited resources they had they really had to make do with what they had and that almost became their sort of calling card that was their, their style like you know when you watch these films you knew that you weren't getting like a slick production like you were getting in right. the states but you were getting something with a lot of heart and earnestness and that's something that i think i really respond to and it's interesting because um um i think roger ebert it was either either roger ebert or, it must have been ebert who said this because he uh, in his review of gamma guardian of the universe with the, the 90s one uh, he, he mentioned how uh, movie lovers kind of go through phases. So, like, when you're young, you know, you're atta- you're attracted to, like, monster movies and fantasy. Mm-hmm. And then at some point you develop tastes where, you know, you start liking films because you're supposed to like them. Like, I know for, for me that happened when I applied to film school. And, like, I was looking through the courses and, like, their film history class, like, I recognized, like, they, they were saying, like, how, oh, we're going to cover, you know, Hitchcock, who I knew, Orson Welles, who I knew. But then they mentioned, like, Truffaut, Godard, Kurosawa, uh, Bergman, and I had no idea who these people were. So yeah. I, I made a point to watch these films. And some of them I genuinely enjoyed. But then there were others where you know, I didn't quite get the appeal, but I felt like I kind of had to like them because, you know, I'm yeah. an adult now and I, yeah. and I need to have proper taste. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, then, but then Ebert was saying how at some point you go through a third phase where, you know, you, you can still have taste, but I think you could still every now and then appreciate the kinds of films that you grew up watching because mm-hmm. – there is a there's something to be said about watching something that's flawed and not perfect because I, especially if you're uh, like an, a DIY indie filmmaker like 
you know, like I love Star Wars, but if I attempted to make Star Wars, my version would make Turkish Star Wars seem like Star Wars by comparison, <laughs> because I just don't have yeah. the, the capability to do that. Whereas, like, if I see something like uh, Man of the Hands of Fate, or exactly, like Man of the Hands of Fate, um, you know, I, I could make something like that, or my yeah. own little twist on that. So, so I, you know, I, 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 I sometimes like to introduce myself as an unabashed lover of, you know, tr- so-called junk culture, because I, I really feel like a lot of these people, like, there, there's an honesty to those films, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, they don't have yeah. pretenses of trying to create something great although sometimes they sometimes in the case of like a troll too they unintentionally create something <laughs> truly wonderful yeah but uh, but yeah I, I feel like i don't know how that is for you like how because i know you're a big tarkovsky fan right yes yes very much so. uh, yeah i mean like uh, i went through a phase where i liked uh, tarkovsky too and and i was really happy too because like i never uh, discovered him through film school like i actually discovered him on my own because my local mm. theater was showing all his classics on 35 millimeter and um and i went through a phase where i really liked Tark- i genuinely liked tarkovsky uh but then i think i sort of tapered off towards the end i mean like i really admire a film like solaris mm-hmm. and it's, it's very comparable to 2001 and i find like solaris is a film that gets to the point quicker than 2001 does yeah but once it gets to the point i i have to admit and it does sort of meander a little bit. Yeah. Whereas 2001, you know, yeah, there's parts that might be a little dull, but once you get to that third act, you know, when they're at Jupiter, I mean, that, mm-hmm. I mean, that, 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 that just rocks my world. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. No, I, I definitely understand what you're talking about with that. Um, that being said, I, I feel like we could go, considerably longer here i absolutely uh i absolutely love this discussion um but we will probably wrap it up now uh i i absolutely uh i i love this discussion i'm glad we got to go to the different topics that we were able to uh and uh it's it's really great to uh see where your uh how how your love of film has progressed beyond just making films and just hearing the excitement and the passion in your uh, voice as far as what you were able to do as far as the Carlton and all that stuff is just absolutely fantastic. And uh, Matthew, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. It was great. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. I'd like to thank Matthew for joining me today. It was really great to talk to him. Uh, Matthew will be back on the Sonic Cinema podcast in 2019 for a uh, special project that I'm working on, and it's basically going to take be the bulk of what I do with the podcast in 2019 as I go back and look at the films of 1999, which is arguably one of the most creative and innovative uh, movie years of our lifetime. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to discussions I'm going to have with Matthew and other filmmakers on the films from that year. Join us, if you haven't already, on the Sonic Cinema Patreon. Uh, You'll get plenty of exclusive content. Uh, I'm going to be discussing the book, some more about my music. I'm also going to be starting to to release uh, reviews for movies that I'm reading, rewatching for the podcast that I may not have reviewed 
yet, but I'm going to be, be doing fresh reviews for when I do those viewings. And uh, that's basically going to, those, before they get posted on Sonic Cinema, those are going to be made available to Patreon, patrons exclusive. So that's at www.patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Coming up on the podcast, I've got uh, some more interviews coming up. I've got a uh, film breakdown of one of the uh, great movies of uh, 1998, as well as we're getting close to the point where I'm going to be discussing uh, Dragon Con that's coming up in Labor Day. I'm going to have more interviews, more discussions on individual films. For now, though, this is uh, Brian Scuttle with the Sonic Cinema Patreon saying thank you very much.